Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I talk to Jez Groom of Ogilvy Change, based in the United Kingdom, and John Hayward of Ambassadogs, based in the Netherlands. Jez and John both talk about how we can use nudging to help change our behavior for the better. This podcast episode is about behavioral economics. To access the show notes page and all the links mentioned by Jez and John in this episode, why not check out economicrockstar.com forward slash Jez and John. That's J-E-Z and J-O-N. Are you an educator? Are you passionate about education and knowledge? Have you considered taking ownership and control over your content? If you're interested in creating a website, a podcast, or even educational videos, like a flipped classroom, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash community. Register your interest, and I'll be in touch. I think what we've done here with um, myself and Rory is kind of fostered and, and nurtured some strong academic pedigree by recruiting, you know, some of the best and you know grads post grads from some of the best universities in the world of behavioral science from ucl from warwick from lse uh your these types of places and then implanting them in a very very creative environment the regular econometrician's solution to this problem would be to put signs up saying don't pee on the floor or aim right or you know please leave the toilets in the same way you'd expect to find them the behavior economic behind this is really interesting it's the, it's the power of now my name is Jez Groom. I'm the Chief Choice Architect of Ogle Change, uh, one of the world's leading behavioural sciences practice, um, and we're now operating across all five continents. So, um, so yeah, do you want to just outline, so obviously you've, you've done um, Greg and Paul um, and interviewed them and have had a look at um, kind of those um, interviews. So what's your kind of angle from um, why did you reach out to us and me and, and what, what do you want to get from? Well, Paul is in academia. Um, yeah. You are more a practitioner and bringing this to the business world as such. And yeah. I love to see the, the merger between the, the two of these the, industries. Yes. And yeah. I think you're that link that I'd love to actually tap okay. into. That sounds good. That's certainly our positioning. So that seems to be it's a really exciting and motivating space for, for us to operate in. And it just seems strange that um, it's a space that some other people seem to be, feel quite uncomfortable in. So, you know, on both sides, a lot of people prefer to be highly creative, but not particularly robust. And a lot of people like to be incredibly robust, but not very creative. We seem to sit at an intersection, which we feel very comfortable at. So. But yeah, no, I'd love to talk about that. Fantastic. You're in a space at the moment where you are at the epicenter and the glue, I suppose, that brings academic and uh, the business people and business minds together. And you're, yeah. you have a fantastic company called Ogilvy Change that provides an outreach for these practitioners and business people to be able to communicate with academia and see what this, uh, work is going on here. If you could maybe elaborate on what I've just said and explain what Ogilvy Change is. Yeah, Ogilvy Change is a behavioural sciences practice and, um, you know, obviously we've, we've thought quite hard about what space we want to occupy and the language, the vernacular that we use is we fundamentally believe in building our ideas on a foundation of science. But when you combine that with the power of creative minds, you truly generate wonder. But that's kind of our line. 
So um, we have kind of some ways we might articulate that a little more simpler, little ideas from big thinkers, uh, sort of building on some of the work, I think, from over the system one thinking, or something that we quite like, that Rory's very proud of, which is we dare to be trivial. In a world that seemed to be, have sort of hyper hubris behind big ideas, we really, really celebrate those small subconscious interventions that have transformational or exponential effects in the real world. And those ones that are more oblique and lateral and creatively uh, induced are the ones that excite us, I think, I think the most. And uh, But it means for some interesting tensions because these two worlds don't marry that well all of the time. And I think what we've done here with um, myself and Rory is kind of fostered and, and nurtured some strong academic pedigree by recruiting, you know, some of the best, you know, grads, postgrads from some of the best universities in the world of behavioural science from UCL, from Warwick, from LSE, uh, York, these types of places, and then implanting them in a very, very creative environment and empowering them to use psychology in interesting ways to solve behavioural problems. And a lot of them, actually, you mentioned business. A lot of problems and, and opportunities we're being sort of put to us are often not marketing or advertising problems they're business and behavioral problems and what these clients and businesses and organizations are looking for is interesting ways um, experimental ways to try and solve them so and it's um, fascinating that the space that we're occupying so, so i think that would be a summary of kind of our proposition if you like I love Rory Sutherland's quote, there to be trivial. In the academic circles, there's always a, I suppose, a pressure for economists to perform in certain ways based on restrictions on the theoretical assumptions that might apply in economics. Um, Behavioral economics, which has really gathered huge momentum, has become more mainstream. And you have created summer schools and what you called the nudge stock awards to allow a congregation of this cohort of people to mm-hmm. uh, break down the barriers of rationality and, as your mantra goes, create little ideas from big thinkers. Mm-hmm. What is the yeah. nudge stock awards? So I think, yeah, we've done, I think, three things. I mean, we're a creative business and we like to try and experiment and do new things. And I think the first thing we did was we created not a conference or an exhibition. Uh, We wanted to create a festival of behavioural science. And, you know, the way we think, we think, well, what's the best festival in the world? Well, it was Woodstock. And how can we kind of create that? And I think there's something quite hippie-ish, quite, I don't know, quite academics and got a lot of my beards and stuff, I don't know, it just feels like that sort of culture and bringing that to the fore, bringing together this kind of geeky cool in a, in a festival was something that we wanted to do, so um, we put it in a venue that we jokingly called South by Southeast to try and generate that same vibe of Austin, Texas and South by Southwest, and, but it was the southeast of England in, in down in Deal, and we're going to go back there again in Folkestone, still in the southeast, but in a slightly bigger venue because it's been so successful. And within that, we really felt after the last festival that we had, it still felt quite theoretical. And what we wanted to do was celebrate those creative executions of behavioural science in all kind of walks of life. So anything that maybe students have done or government departments have done, councils, all the way up to maybe more private businesses, PLCs, etc. 
And um, so we're really excited. So at Nudgestock 3, we've got the Nudge Awards, or affectionately known as the Nudgies. And we're just, um, at the moment, the judging process is happening. We're obviously enabling them, um, but that we've got some strict compliance that we follow to make sure that they're independently judged and awarded by uh, judges that are not OBB. Because we really, you know, myself and Rory have devoted quite a lot of our time in the last sort of five, six, seven, eight years to to try and accelerate what we think is just fascinating work done by academia, but to make it more accessible and translate it into things and tools and assets that can be used uh, and understood by the wider world. And I think that the nudges is one of that. So I'm really hoping there'll be some cases that maybe are slightly more oblique and more lateral be minded to maybe solve some of the financial issues we find ourselves in or maybe some of the social issues or health issues, etc. So, yeah, so it should be, should be fun. Yeah, it should be good. Based on the previous nudge awards, what type of nudges have really caught your attention? Um, well, it's funny, actually. We were talking a little bit about this. You know, we believe in this foundation of science, power of creativity to generate wonder. And when people talk about what seems to get people excited about behavioural science, and specifically a nudge, um, are the ones that are more oblique and more lateral. So, you know, Thaler and Sunstein celebrate the fly in the urinal in the book nudge. Um, and that captures people's imagination quite a few years ago uh, now. And that was quickly followed by Fun Theory with their work in Piano Stairs. And that was celebrated as, you know, an interesting film. Ironically, both are not empirically evidenced. Um, that maybe the academics would, would be as happy with. But they did seem to stimulate some real excitement and interest around an area that had largely been locked away, sort of inaccessible in papers written in very, very difficult language and sentences um, in journals. And um, so I think, I think that those two ones, the build on Piano Stairs is just a brilliant a sustainable and scalable solution because we, when we reference that, we say that's a great intervention, but actually how much money would it cost to change every stairs into a set of piano keys in the world? Quite a lot. And after a while, would people continue to go up the stairs or go up the escalator? Our, our, our hypothesis would be they'd revert to type over time. Whereas um, I've seen one nice nudge, which essentially is just kind of stick men, one stick man pointing to the stairs and one stick man pointing to the escalator. And so it's a simple sort of print, you know, sort of uh, mural type execution, very cheap, very low cost. And the stick man pointing to the escalator is just a fat stick man. And the stick man that's pointing to the um, stairs is, is a relatively hot sort of good be my healthy one. And that for me is kind of where I think this type of more provocative thinking uh, is getting to. You might have a creative execution, which isn't quite right, but then people take that and essentially copy it and make it better. Um, so I think that'd be one. I think there was one, the religious norming, I think, was another one of my favourites, the beggar that had all his bowls, and it said which uh, religion is the most caring, and um, he had Hindi and you know, Muslim and Catholic, and he was essentially utilising a norming sort of frame and bowl effect to generate competition between religions to generate donations, which I thought was pretty cool. There's another one, I think, which is um, how you get tips in uh, male attendants getting tips in a German toilet, I think. And there's two bowls. I think it's one I think Thaler tweeted it about a year and a half ago. And it's um, I think it's a two euro tip is kind of and for, for men with bigger penises. Um, and then there's a smaller bowl with smaller tips for men with small penises. And, you know, it's just, it's just great because you, you're never going to be the guy that puts in the 10 cents. You're, you've got to put in the two euro. <laughs> you know, and, and for me, 
that for me is this space of wonder, which is, you know, I'm sure you could have done another behavioral intervention, which would have actually been less humorous, less witty, but would be playing to that, I don't know, so 87% of men normally give two euros. And it would work, but for me that would be leaning too much on the foundation of science and not enough on the power of creativity. And, you know, when you mention these things, they tap into our subconscious, you know, and all of the reason why I see, I see this field so exciting is because those are the types of nudges that seem to really attract our subconscious attention and make us laugh, as you did then, but make us share these stories and, and, and make us want to do them again, which I think is quite important. So, so yes, I think that's the space uh, we're in. I think that the trivial thing is that often, again, myself and Rory have talked about this, that, you know, if you've got a big problem, there is a, often a heuristic that you need a big solution and you need a big, important person to do that, and they need to have a very, very big idea that costs a lot of money. So kind of structurally and hierarchically built into the system, quite a lot of kind of strong defaults that get in the way maybe of getting these ideas through. Um, we're, you know, very, very happy to put our hands up in front of a room full of, you know, executive committee members and say, maybe we should make the button on your website a 2D button, turn it into a 3D button because people will click on it more. And these sort of ideas often seem quite trivial and consequential sometimes downright embarrassing to present, but actually have proven sort of academic, psychological ground results. And uh, yeah, I think there's a tension there, which, you know, some of the ideas just don't seem to get the traction or the space they need because people may be a little bit embarrassed by the trivialness of them. Uh, yeah, that's um, a barrier which I think, I think we're pretty good at overcoming now, but um, it's taken us maybe five years to be able to take senior leaders to that place some of the examples there you mentioned seem to have some parallels with marketing like a b studies yeah or, or a b testing do you have any examples of something that you might have done i think you have one with the times where you mm -hmm. actually had where they actually had a very high return on their investment on what you actually displayed um yeah I mean, we've, done, we've done a few things i think some of them are published and some of them some of them are quite confidential but i can talk about them as, as sector case studies so I think there was one sort of major service provider of a particular kind of utility and we just did some simple A-B tests on utilising some heuristics and, you know, Behavior Insights team have done this type of work brilliantly. I think some of the HMRC work they've done and, it, and they're really simple things. So changing subject headers, adding in authority and um, maybe adding some norming messages. And we did an experiment it was with 28,000 different email addresses and, and individuals and uh, we tested one execution. It didn't have no effect with a norming frame. It's like thousands of businesses are doing this thing. You know, why wouldn't you? That type of message. It didn't have any effect, and we kind of reflected on that, and we think we know why. But we did another one where we just simply chunked up the nature of the communication into it was a service piece of communication, wasn't necessarily marketing, and we just chunked up the information into three easily readable paragraphs with headers. And we got 47% more responses at a statistical significant level on a further 28,000 cells. So, you know, some of these quite small things can have uh, demonstrable effects that just don't cost anything other than the time to test and, and, and work. The time stuff that we did, I think we've done two, we've just done a third study, which we run very happy with it, all slightly different. So the first one we did for the Times was rearranging the choice architecture of their pack design. They had a number of different options, um, 
a lot of customer-centric organisations think that to make it easier for their customers, they need to produce very, very bespoke and personalised products or bundles, and that creates massive amounts of choice. And actually, we know, you know, we know the choice overload is well documented. You have to want choice, which you do nothing. So we started to rationalise the choice of range, and change the naming and nomenclature, change the pricing structures. And you're exactly right, we've got an ROI in the first three months of £257 worth of incremental sales for every £1 they spent with us doing work because the, essentially the, the kind of infrastructure for that type of interaction was already there. We just enhanced it, um, utilising our sort of psychological insight. So we did a, a subsequent study with call centre scripting, which I think we were up to last year, where we essentially tripled the um, sales and conversion and retention rates of their call centre agents by getting staff to use maybe four or five phrases which they co-scripted with us um, which was great and you know we did that at a very kind of high level of rigor so not as like a one tail a long one tail t-test and we've got this p-score of 0.002 or 0.002 so there's a one in five thousand chance that was due to chance so really happy with that and then we've just finished a further intervention which is more about the impact of the environment and the context in which you're working rather than just script redesign, which is about changing the colour of walls, changing the quality of air, changing the body cognition and the poses and the positions that people are in in call centres. And and again, we've seen a further enhancement of like 185% increase in the average number of sales. But for these sales agents, just by simply changing the environment in which they operate to make it more psychologically attuned to the jobs that they're there to perform. So, yeah, so we're really happy with these kind of still experimental but seem to be validated pieces of more either environmental messaging or, or scripting cues that seem to drive a lot of commercial results. So, yeah, so we're, we're good. And we, we have a bit of fun as well. We did an experiment which we really liked, and um, it wasn't necessarily for a client. We do things proactively just to prove to ourselves we can be slightly more oblique. But one of our favourite experiments was trying to increase the well-being of people within our business. So what we did is we saw the facial feedback hypothesis, which is how... You know, gripping a pen in your teeth essentially induces a, a smile, which is, you know, a real smile. Or if you grab hold of the pen with your lips, then you purse your lips and have a frown. And building on this facial feedback hypothesis, we developed a bottle top that you could screw onto a top of, top of a bottle of a drink. And it was in the shape of a pair of lips. And what it did is it forced you to essentially smile as you drank. And then we did the Oxford Oxford Happiness uh, Benchmarking Wellbeing Exercise, and we got a 9% uplift in wellbeing. So, um, you know, we were trying to figure out kind of, yes, there's some commercial applications, but there's some real kind of behavioural ones that, um, you know, people like Paul Dolan, who had been on the podcast before, talk about. And it's about applying, you know, creative minds to that. So psychologists see the feedback hypothesis we then start to build that into maybe some form of behaviour, which, you know, happens regularly. We then do some 15 prototypes and iterations to get to a perfect fit that gets to a psychologically frequent smile that feels good on the lips. And then we then do a series of 3D printing exercises, and we generate 48 of them, and then host a series of picnics where we're measuring these 
is pretty post well-being schools. So yeah, so we're having having quite a lot of fun as well. I mean, it sometimes doesn't feel like a job sometimes, but uh, sometimes it really does. I've done it all the time. My name is John Hayward. I'm a, well, I call myself a, an experienced planner. Uh, part of that is also kind of being a behavioral econometrician. I spoke with John Hayward because I wanted to find out a bit more about the piano stairs and the urinal fly. Dutch weather, it's kind of... Like Irish weather. <laughs> but it's quite random. Okay, John lives in Amsterdam, so let's find out what he does and what the connection is between Amsterdam and the urinal fly. And I run a company called Ambassadogs. It's quite a new company. We're all about actually helping brands to curate great customer experiences. It's not kind of just all about scripting the next best TV advert. It's recognising that the core human desire is all about to lead a better life, not to buy stuff. And therefore, we need to help brands start thinking about how they can show how they're helping consumers lead better lives. And a, a lot of that is getting brands to think less about products and more about people uh, and that's really where the power of behavioral economics is really coming into play now it's, it's quite an exciting series of conversations we're having with, uh, with clients now no better person to recognize the fact that human behavior can be influenced or we can nudge people to behave in certain ways and i'd love for you to be able to explain the whole concept of the urinal fly you're based in amsterdam and this is an origin from amsterdam i think from a an airport toilet it is uh it's, it's, it's funny enough it's quite an old one it's uh this this, this happened back in the 90s at Schiphol airport which is the you know the big uh the big international airport in the netherlands and they had a real problem. Uh, they had a problem that they were spending a lot of money on cleaning, especially the gents' toilets and especially the area near the gents' urinals. And the big problem here is, you know, to be honest, men lack precision when it comes to peeing. When men pee, it's not something we're truly focused on. And this is more so in certain environments. So, you know, you're at the airport. The last thing you're really thinking about is peeing. You're thinking about, I need to get to the gate on time. Is there going to be a seat free next to me on the plane, um, you know, even the, the meeting that I'm flying to, there's a whole load of other things on our minds other than uh, can I pee and pee in the right place that actually doesn't create splashback. Uh, <laughs> I think there's also, uh, there's, there's added insights that kind of fit behind this as well. So, you know, it's not my toilet. I know there's a cleaner there. So there's part, part of people's mentality is a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's not my problem to clean up and there are people to do that. Uh, and, and, you know, even when we do get it right and kind of pee into the urinal, there's still understanding where the best the best place to pee is, if that makes sense. There's that kind of sweet spot for getting uh, the minimal splashback. And for Schiphol, this is, you know, this is a big problem. Firstly, they can't afford to have wet floors because wet floors in, in toilets mean people slip up and there's always a kind of a, a health and safety hazard. Plus, you know, pee on the floor is that thing you talk about when it's like, oh, yeah, Schiphol Airport, it's kind of filthy. So... They had, a, they had a real problem. They, you know, the Dutch are very uh, smart people. They look at lots of problems and they come up with very smart and ingenious solutions um, uh, to kind of help resolve this. And interestingly enough, they kind of recognise that for years and years and years, uh, toilet manufacturers, urinal manufacturers, have been trying to find this kind of magic bullet of toilet design that minimises splashback. Uh, and the Dutch were quite smart because they actually realised the real solution wasn't necessarily a product design, it was actually a user experience. Uh, if you can get the man to pee in the right spot, 
then actually you've kind of resolved the problem. So they they got their minds thinking around really how do you, how do you get men to aim properly, uh, and they they quite correctly rationalised that um, the urine behaviour of men is it's quite it's quite funny. Um, we can't resist peeing on things, uh, especially if there's a, a, a real chance of that thing almost kind of getting washed away down the plug hole. So they come up with this very smart idea. And actually, uh, if you look at it, the army back in the 60s had, as a joke, little mini targets in their urinals. Um, so they, they kind of, um, Schiphol kind of came up with this idea. They thought of a fly. Uh, they recognised that, again, the psychology is more to do with the thing we're trying to wash away is something we don't want. So, you know, if this was a butterfly or a ladybird, then it would probably be less successful. But a fly was considered to be quite unsanitary. Uh, so they designed this urinal. Uh, I've been trying to read around. I, there's no, there's nothing empirical uh, when it comes to results. The, the toilet manufacturer who actually created this product say there's something like a 20% reduction in cleaning bills, but, you know, they, they are the manufacturer of the toilet, so there's a bias there in, in the result. I think the guy who originally came up with the concept at Schiphol uh, was talking more around kind of 8 or 10% uh, reduction in cleaning bills. But again, you know, in, in the bigger picture, that's, that's, that makes a difference. And if it avoids, you know, smelly, non-slippy, non-smelly and non-slippy floors, then that's a, an added bonus. People might be thinking, why are we having a conversation about pee on the floor and a fly in a urinal? And what has it got to do with economics? Well, the thing is, the regular econometrician's solution to this problem would be to put signs up saying, don't pee on the floor or aim right or, you know, please leave the toilets in the same way you'd expect to find them. The behavioural economic behind this is really interesting. It's the, it's the power of now. And that's, that's a, a thinking that is, you know, the further away you are in either time or distance from a message about an activity and the activity itself, the less likely the two are to combine. So, you know, although in toilets we have that lovely sign on the door saying, you know, cleaned regularly, please, please leave in the way that you expect to find it. In walking that 20 feet from the door to the toilet, that message has kind of gone out of your brain and all those other things that you're worrying about at the airport are kind of back in your head and that's when you kind of miss pee. So the power of now is all about delivering the right message to inspire the, activate, the activity at the right point. And the, the fly is almost at the act of peeing. Uh, and that's, that's the behavioural economics kind of resolution to it rather than the econometrician's solution, the logistician's solution, which is put signs up and demand that people do something. My own mother must have been somewhat of an economist. Um, I have five brothers growing up and three sisters. And on the toilet cistern, we had a sign that said, if you sprinkle when you tinkle, be a sweetie and wipe the seaty. And yeah. it was quite effective because it was right in front of us. And we, you know, we read it every time we went to the toilet. So whilst you were actually peeing, you were being reminded of the message. And I think that's where, that's where uh, Schiphol had maybe failed uh, prior to this because the signs that they put up weren't necessarily there in your face when you were peeing. They were there as you were walking in or as you were leaving, and it was way too late or too premature. Yes, yes, yes. This fly in the urinal, essentially this is a lesson on how we can actually nudge people yeah. to do more bigger and greater things and, and allow us to behave in certain ways. Totally. I mean, I mean the, the other examples that you were mentioning, so the fun theory, the, the musical stairs, yes, uh, yes. 
is actually, you know, it's, it's Volkswagen. And this, again, this is a, this is, I don't know, this must be a 2011, 2012 campaign. It's, it's quite old, but it's still something that I regularly talk about because it's taking, it's taking a social problem and it's looking at how we use behavioral economics, how we use nudge, nudge theory, decision science to actually help people change behavior. And again, uh, you know, Volkswagen did lots of activations around the fun theory. They saw lots of sociological challenges and problems that were coming. So obesity, uh, the fact that people were littering the streets and not really kind of caring about their environment. And they did some very smart activations around helping people change their behavior for a positive outcome. So the musical stairs was a great idea. And, and again, that, that's based on the behavioral economic of choice architecture. A lot, of pe- a lot of people kind of looked at that and went, oh, it's gamification. We have to gamify things because actually choice architecture decides almost or discerns an outcome from a series of decisions. So in the example of you know, buying a car, you don't see a BMW advert and go, right, I'm going to buy a BMW. You go through this rational, uh, rational and emotional roller coaster of, am I going to look good when I pull up on the work car park? Is it fit for purpose? Can I fit the golf clubs and the pushchair in it? Is the wife going to like it? Can we afford it? There's a whole series of decisions we have to make before we actually buy a car. And however big or small the decision is, there is this phenomenology we have to go through, even in the decision of, do I go up the escalator or do I walk up the stairs? Uh, You know, how tired am I? How much of a rush am I in? How packed are the stairs? How packed is the escalator? What value will I get in, get out of walking up the stairs or going on the escalator? And if you look at the, if you look at the actual video, it's really interesting because the exit from the subway station, as, as people are coming out, they actually have to walk past the bottom of the staircase to go up the escalator. So there's, there's part of me that's going, well, you know, it's kind of obviously a lot of people are going for the, I'm tired, I can't be bothered, I'll let the escalator take me. And overnight, just by making the staircase a piano, an engaging thing to play with, suddenly a lot of those phenomenologies of decisions have been over overruled by the, oh my God, I'm going to make some noise and I can, you know, I can recant chopsticks that I used to be able to play years and years ago. And suddenly the decisions of why I should go up the stairs versus why I should go up the escalator are totally, totally re-skewed back to going up the stairs. And it's... it's it's genius in the difference from the day before to the actual day of the activation. Exactly how many people are not only going up the stairs, but actually going up and down and up and down the stairs. The, the amount of time, extra time that we're actually spending on those stairs uh, is significant. Volkswagen also did a really smart thing in Stockholm again around litter. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called, I think it's the world's deepest bin. And they basically put like a little movement activated uh, module into trash cans in a park uh, and it was a simple concept you you throw your rubbish in and it kind of makes this sound effect as if the bin has got this massive pit underneath it and finally your rubbish makes a crash at the bottom it takes like 10 seconds so you, people are going oh my god this is like a massive drop uh, and it was remarkable because you know they'd gone from a situation where people were actually throwing litter at the bin and missing and not doing anything about it to actually overnight with this activation. People were actually foraging near and far from the bins to find rubbish to put back in so they could actually hear it and play with it and, and, and experience the, the world's deepest bin. 
these are amazing and, and there's so much we can do in order to help people to encourage people to slow down there's also going back to our earlier conversation about peeing I think um, a German company has created a paint that once you put on or it's an invisible or transparent paste or paint you put on the walls and at night time it actually when men go to the toilet against this wall it actually bounces back onto them <laughs> <laughs> and the the wall remains clean as such. Awesome. Yes, it's 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 phenomenal. So it helps cleans up the the whole environment, the street, and changes people's behaviors for the better. Yeah, and and again, a lot of these a lot of these behaviors that we're actually trying to change in the world of advertising are really interesting because these are the behaviors that trip us up. These are you know we're great in advertising at coming up with these almost puritanical designed customer experiences there's that classic illustration that's kind of floating around at the moment of a footpath or two footpaths in a park i don't know if you've heard of desire paths but desire paths are those paths that we inherently take as human beings that are almost shortcuts and it's it's a classic picture of where the designed paths have been labeled as design and the desire path has been labeled as human experience or ux and again, I think a lot of the, the greatness, a lot of the power behind behavioral economics is it helps us really bring advertising campaigns to life, knowing what the glitches are in human nature uh, and helping us overcome some of those glitches uh, that, that we know normally scupper us with a, with a, you know, a puritanically planned advertising campaign. John, this has been amazing. I'd actually love to have you on because I could definitely do an hour of this with you. Happily, uh, well, trust me, I think behavioural economics is a really interesting new space for us to be playing. And I'm not saying it's ever going to replace traditional planning. I think this is, behavioural economics is certainly something that is a new layer that we should add. It's also a new layer that when you brief this into a creative team, adds a new dimension and a new angle for them to come in from. And again, we know more about people than we do about products. So it's, it's a very, it's very interesting way of actually starting off an ideation process. I wanted to find out a little bit more about John and how he got started with behavioural economics and whether he had any connection with Jez Groom or Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy Change. You've um, previously worked with Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy Change, had you? Well, uh, this is the reason why this is this is why I'm here. When I was working at Dare in London, uh, and when Rory was president of the IPA, he did an awesome job at getting a whole load of people really excited and really interested in the concept of behavioral economics and from a planning perspective, how it can actually really help build creative ideas that work. Um, so it was actually working with Rory. We did, we did a whole series of workshops and he got, he did a, uh, we, there was a kind of an event where we presenting to clients as well, because obviously we've got to get brands into this concept and into thinking about behavioral economics. And it was, it was all of those activities and, the red herring book that uh, also came out of the IPA that, that really got the scientist in me. I mean, my, my background is, is mainly science. It kind of got the scientist in me a lot, a lot more interested in, you know, human nature and how we can actually really help people lead better lives. That was John Hayward of Ambassadogs. You can find out more about what John does at ambassadogs.nl. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, why not subscribe to the Economic Rockstar podcast and you will get access to all previous episodes, including comedians Andrew Heaton and Joram Bauman, 
and multi-millionaire Ryan Blair. Earlier in our conversation, we were talking about how behavioral economics is changing things and how we can nudge people. And I want to know, based on what you're doing at Ogilvy Change, I want to know why we're embracing this beyond academic life. There's an interesting theme that I think we've just seen to develop, which I've started to hear, which is that that it feels like we're moving out of um, a diagnostic stage of behavioural economics. Um, Some amazing work, Nobel Prize winning work has been done um, in the last sort of 30 and 40 years. But largely it's been about um, identifying shortcuts and biases in the brain and trying to understand them from a psychological and sometimes physiological perspective. Um, so it feels like there's a sign and a symptom that's been observed and then some form of diagnosis sort of procedure been taking place. And that feels like where we've been. But the exciting sort of new panacea is more in the solution space. And it really feels like, you know, Nudge was very instrumental in doing that, um, highlighting some simple interventions like flies and urinal, some very, very structured and empirically evidenced nudges like Save More Tomorrow, which started to catalyze kind of a movement from more sort of sort of the solution side of the business. You know, I'm, I mean, we're at the early days yet, we're at the preliminary stage, but I really, really do believe that the creativity of businesses like ours can combine with the sort of the foundation of science and making sure we do things with rigor is where the future lies. So yeah, we we do some things within our practice which are about selling and um, more often than not, people have made either a conscious or an unconscious decision that they would like to buy something. They've either walked into a store or they've gone to a website and in those instances, we use the heuristics and biases to allow them to flow through those sort of selling and buying purchases um, a lot easier and saving them time. So, you know, I think the classic example would be buying gas or electricity. Uh, takes too much time and too complicated. And um, that's going to undergo some change in that area. But um, quite a lot of other websites do that, that seem people, clients, businesses seem to make some processes seem just so unwieldy that they no longer become motivating. So, yeah, we're doing a lot of work in that area. But we're also doing a lot of work in health and about designing intervention for governments and also private sector clients about how they might solve some of these sort of lifestyle issues around obesity, malnutrition. And um, we're also working in the area of sustainability. We've just done some work with um, Hubbub, which we've got to present yet, which is came out of our summer school with um, some young sort of entrepreneurs, which is good. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really excited about this sort of moving out of diagnostic to solution-based behavioural economic ideas and interventions. Is it mainly startups, entrepreneurs that are embracing this whole method of doing business and exploring the behavioural side of their customers? Or is this going to be something that's going to be rolled out and all companies should actually develop it? I think it's um, it's a new form of innovation. Um, so, it, you know, we've seen industrial innovation and we've seen technological innovation. What we're now experiencing is, uh, you know, Rory often referred to it as a kind of new era of psychological innovation. And often the interventions are very sort of ingenious and often very cleverly simple. So um, I think we're at the start of that. And I think the first thing we're finding is that people need to be immersed in this world and understand how they're making decisions before they then embrace it. Um, So we spend a lot of time in the essential training 
um, a masterclass space. And once we've got some form of capability in the organization, the clients then we're starting to trial ideas which we've created together with the businesses and with the customers or, or consumers. So, um, yeah, it'll take some time. You know, I, I mean, these things do take time. So I think prospect, spirit, prospect theory was 1979. So I think it'll take um, a few years yet for it to be started to catch fire in lots of major organizations around the world. Jez, if you could recommend a number of books that anybody who's interested in this side of economics, what would those books be? Um, it's a really good question, I think, Frank, because um, most people would start in this area, I think, with uh, academia and then work backwards from there because that's where this, is, this has been. But I, I fundamentally believe that Gladwell and um, the Free Economics guys kind of opened this world and made it accessible and fun and it had been locked away in journals. And often referred to, I think unfairly, as pop sociology or pop economics. So I think it's very, very valid to pick up a copy of Blinker Outliers, Free Economics and Super Free Economics, get excited about counterintuitive, oblique and lateral thinking, and then start to move to maybe some more of the sort of harder psychological work of Ariely with predictably rational, upside of rationality, and then start to go a little bit, slightly more dense into the world of nudge and thinking fast and slow. I really, really like Cialdini's um, Six Principles of Influence. And I think for me, that was kind of, again, one of the key kind of fundamental pillars of how you use influence to change behavior, but also sell. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Yeah, that's fantastic advice to start with those books, I believe, because they start training your mind to think quite differently to the perceptions that we have regarding our environment. And it just puts a, makes things, turn things on its head, really. And then to bring it up to the next level and looking at Dan Ariely's books and then the thinking fast, slow. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, often, you know, I see people on trains and tubes you know struggling with thinking fast and slow you know i think for me it's a compendium of academic work and should be treated as such you know it's a six month to a year long read and we need both so um you know i think that's really important to me that if we do want widespread adoption of new cleverly simple ideas um, around the world then we've got to talk in a language that people understand and can apply otherwise it'll still be locked away in universities and academia and um and it shouldn't be i mean it's interesting. I mean, just to, to pick up on your point about kind of widespread application. Um, so we've just recently done a piece of a piece of work, which even though we sit within an advertising agency and marketing agency group, something that you might have not expected. We've just completed um, or just completing a, a subconscious bias training for recruitment and also career progression in organizations. And um, I think that's that's really interesting that, you know, we, we've got a skill set that we're beginning to apply in areas other than marketing and advertising. So, you know, we're starting to tackle some issues based around are people recruiting in their own image and are they subconsciously biased or for or against tall people, short people, fat people, thin people, people with different skins, ethnicity, races, languages, accents. 
and trying to create environments where we and processes where we start to become more aware of those, maybe inhibit some of the ones which aren't aren't as helpful as we would like, such that we can get a more diverse sort of heterogeneous working population, which I think is fascinating. And it's got nothing to do with marketing and advertising. In Ireland, I've seen a clip before, it was on the news actually, and children, as we know, are the most honest people out there. Mm. And they did a study where they had two equally qualified female teachers going to a primary school with children at the age of about six or seven. And they intentionally had one of the female teachers um, being naturally very good, pretty looking, blonde hair, and the other one was your, I don't know how you might put her, you know. Average. Average, you know. All the kids wanted a pretty teacher. Yeah, I mean, there's certain qualities that are either hardwired or culturally become wired into our subconscious. And whilst we can't switch them off, you can become more aware of them and try and create an environment or maybe a process which allows you to inhibit their bias. So, you know, there's some very simple things that we've done when we conducted the Ogilvy Change Summer School. So Juliet Hodges is one of our brilliant choice architects who managed that process. We reviewed all of the questions without seeing the university and academic qualifications because I know that people can be biased towards certain universities and influenced by that. We also redid them in pairs. So obviously we had two people. Um, to try and nullify some of the bias. But we also read them once in a particular order and read CVs again in a different order to stop ordering effect. So, you know, um, people often can be influenced by, um, you know, whether they're anchored by someone that's a really, really high caliber candidate early or vice versa, someone that's relatively low. So, yeah, so these are the sort of things that psychologists have known and studied but haven't been put into programs and put into training assets that allow people to become more aware such that uh, we can start to kind of offset these and you know some very very simple things um, such as making sure that you're in good time for the meeting making sure that the meeting room isn't particularly uh, too warm or too cold making sure that you're comfortable making sure that you're prepared all these sort of things help us make more balanced decisions because we know that sometimes our emotions can push us into places where we're more reliant on subconscious processes rather than reflective ones it is fascinating Absolutely amazing. I've heard before, I'll I'll wrap up soon, Jess, sorry, but I've heard before about the way McDonald's had their seating intentionally molded, the plastic molding of the seating so that people wouldn't be hanging around. It's fast food outlets. People, they don't get comfortable there and they're out, unlike maybe Starbucks to have the couches. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, going back to the um, selection processes, my favorite one is um, MIT did a paper around haptic sensations. So exactly as you described, how things called how things feel to your sense of touch. When they were review, reviewing candidates, they um, had a, a normalised control and treatment groups um, in terms of interviewers. And they had the same candidates with the same CVs. But to the, when they gave the CVs to the, the interviewers, for some of the interviewers, they gave them heavy clipboards. And for some of the interviewers, they gave them the same candidates, but um, on lighter clipboards. And those people that are interviewing the people were like, oh, yeah, this candidate um, yeah, is a very, you know, got a lot of gravitas, got a lot of experience, feels very kind of robust. And they were transferring the weight of the clipboard to the gravitas of the candidate. Um, and um, so it's those type of haptic sensations that are, again, quite fascinating to us around how it can change how people 
behave to others um, and make judgments and decisions about others. So that's why that's why I'm really excited because I think that the creativity that exists within marketing and advertising agencies is now being allowed to answer questions which are maybe using some of the psychological insights and others to maybe solve problems that we haven't been asked before in a very very creative intuitive way and yeah that's why i think um, this this type of work will go from strength to strength i mean there's kind of a, an underlying agenda and you kind of right at the beginning of the question would be hinting at it would be about how we use nudges for good and how we make sure that we're designing choice architecture that allows people to make decisions that are good for them especially in a selling environment where the buyer could be psychologically misled and Professor Thaler was at Nudge.com, our annual festival this year, and he also was at the Paperless Exchange uh, last week. And just driving a theme around kind of what, not necessarily ethics, but what should be our own kind of self-governance in this area. And so he set out some broad guidelines around, you know, it should seem fair and, and choices be transparent to the customer or the or the, the individual. So, you know, at Ogilvy Change, we're following through with those, those principles and ensuring that you know, there's not, you know, we call it psychological asymmetry um, in favour of maybe the organisation versus um, the individual or the institution versus the individual. So and I think there's more work to be done there. But with the guiding thoughts of Professor Thaler, I think I think we'll be in a, in a good place. Yes. Jez, you mentioned a couple of resources there that I'm sure my listeners will definitely head to Ogilvy Change and check out Nudge Stock too. But do you have any other resources that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. We do a, a number of different things. Simple things like Twitter is, is really interesting. So, you know, we have um, hashtag nudges in the wild, which is an ongoing Twitter kind of hashtag, which allows you to pick up um, some interesting things around the world. Um, and that's with all of our colleagues in Ogilvy Change in Sydney and Stockholm, etc., which is quite, quite cool. We see some quite funny and interesting stuff on there. We also have um, an Ogilvy Change community. So if you go on to website you can join the change community and we have lots of talks in the agency to do with behavioral science and broader topics and if you're on the list you're invited and you can come along there in london i think the last one was on the physicality of things and how important it is in the digital world which is fascinating the other one is um, we have an amazing 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 monthly roundup of all things psychological called obehave written by juliet hodges and kiza garahan and um, that's got a big following and um Every month has got some really fun but interesting insights uh, around the psychological world. And then finally, yeah, we have our own festival of behavioural science, Nudgestock. We've run it for three years and all of the talks are available on our YouTube channel. And then also as well, we've got the Nudge Awards. So this year we have the Nudge Awards, um, 16 shortlisted entries of the best in class so far. And Professor Taylor will get a Grand Prix to Warren Hatter from Going With The Grain um, this year. So yeah, lots and lots of things going on. Um, but check out our Twitter, SlideShare and YouTube channels and you can catch up with all of that stuff. Fantastic. Jez, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Oh, no, I mean, um, it's people like you that are kind of evangelising and help spread the word. So what we're trying to do is create something and change, change the world, utilising quite small, you know, terribly simple interventions to make the world better, I think. Um, so thank you. Absolutely. Um, I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Jez, you are an economic rock star. Thank you so much for joining me today.
I think we can't help it because big data is going to determine how we're going to be able to interpret this data because all these theoretical models are based on assumptions, most of them anyway, and they just, theory comes first and then the result, research or results come second. We need the research and results to come first and then build a theory on it and big data is going to do that and so will uh, this behavioural uh, step. No, I agree. No, I agree. I think, I think what's really, really interesting is that um, when you quite there's been um, I think a recent study on a lot of the experimental studies to see if they can be replicated. Um, so um, I think what's coming into question with some of these studies, not necessarily the ones that we've been talking about, but I think there's some on the sort of edges where people are kind of designing experiments, not quite making it significant, retweaking them to get the p score that makes them significant, and then celebrating them as findings. And they're not scalable or sustainable. They're not. You know, it's just very, very domain dependent and can't be replicated. So, yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. It's actually experimentation, sort of knowingly or unknowingly in the wider world, and then draw on the big data to support those findings. I think it's going to be, you know, the next, you know, one of the next steps. Uh, yes. Yeah. Very, very exciting. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, cool. Thanks, Jez. Thanks very much. And this will be going out Thursday morning early. Fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely amazing. Thanks a lot. Bye.